VegCast. 20 is plenty. VegCast. And this is the second podcast for January 2007. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. And yes, we're back with another VegCast, the Veggie Podcast. Thanks for downloading VegCast. And this time around, we are going to look at the role of the media in uh, covering the topic of vegetarianism. Uh, I'll be doing a little bit of commentary on a report called Livestock's Long Shadow from the United Nations. And we will have an interview with Mickey Z, who is a regular columnist uh, for Veg News, as well as an author and activist and a vegetarian, of course, who has a lot to say about the way the media covers different topics, but especially vegetarianism. We'll also have some music and a science fact, as always. So, don't touch that dial. Fast forward through this. No, sit here and listen to the rest of Okay, now the impetus for this particular podcast was in reading a couple of things uh, very close to each other. One was this report, Livestock's Long Shadow from the United Nations, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Uh, And the other was a uh, review of the Bloodless Revolution, A History of Vegetarianism, which I saw in The New Yorker, and uh, when I contacted Mickey Z, he had just finished writing up a rebuttal to a review in The Nation that was shockingly similar. And the common element between the two, I think, is uh, a certain bias that goes unexamined. And of course, as vegetarians and vegans, uh, we do have a bias that uh, we look for things to support our point of view and so forth, Um, and I'm ready to admit that. But apparently those who choose to eat meat uh, do not consider themselves to have any kind of bias when assessing uh, arguments about the ethics or the health or environmental effects of eating meat. They don't seem to see that there might possibly be a conflict of interest there that uh, would get in the way of a truly, completely objective appraisal of that. And I think this report from the FAO is one example of that. It's very uh, thorough, very exhaustive in examining all the various ways that livestock uh, contributes to greenhouse gases and therefore global warming. And you may recall we touched on this on the last podcast, but the takeaway is that Livestock is the greatest factor in global warming that is contributed by humans, the raising of livestock. The greatest, larger than all of the trucks, cars, airplanes, uh, everything else that uh, we put into the atmosphere, it is the raising of livestock, which is a larger factor. Now, right there, you might think that the national debate about what to do and how to do it about global warming would at least, you know, maybe split its time 50-50 between livestock and transport, which is the other major uh, source of emissions. But, um, I mean, I'm not even expecting the 
level of discussion to be commensurate, namely that we should be talking mostly about the raising of livestock and what to do about it. No, I just think maybe even it, it would be logical to say, well, we could see uh, somewhere in the realm of 50-50. But of course, that's ludicrous because as we know, there is no discussion whatsoever about this. This report comes out and is basically buried. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that it is simply something that meat eaters refuse to challenge, that it is a convenience to them to continue eating something that they're used to. Uh, forget the trope that th- it's a question of taste or something tasting better. Meat just happens to taste a certain way that uh, meat eaters are used to, and their reluctance to give up this one thing that they're used to is apparently more important than the uh, the continued survival of the human race, basically. That would seem to be the logical conclusion from the fact that we have very stark data about what is causing global warming, and we have uh, a very clear sense of what is getting discussed and what isn't. And so if somebody else has another way of interpreting that, I'd be glad to hear that. You can send that to Vance at VegCast.com. But turning to this report, Livestock's Long Shadow Environmental Issues and Options, the very first part, uh, the very first sentence of the executive summary uh, says that this report aims to assess the full impact of the livestock sector on environmental problems along with potential technical and policy approaches to mitigation. So right there they've essentially said that they're going to look at policy approaches uh, that could mitigate this uh, tremendous effect that livestock has on our greenhouse gases. And it it is a tremendous effect um, just on all environmental issues, even if you don't look specifically at global warming. Some of the stats that they have in here uh, include the total area occupied by grazing, just grazing, is equivalent to 26% of the ice-free terrestrial surface of the planet. One-fourth of the basically inhabitable surface of the planet is dedicated to grazing animals uh, for food. And, of course, the key point is that uh, livestock is responsible for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions measured in CO2 equivalent, and they uh, do specify this is a higher share than transport. So this is a big uh, problem, and they go into all the different ways that uh, livestock contributes. But uh, the interesting point is that uh, they don't seem to come to the conclusion that one of the main things that we might do is uh, look at policy in such a way as to decrease the amount of livestock being raised. Uh, Look at ways of getting people to not eat so much meat so that you wouldn't have so much livestock. Unfortunately, the report's authors... Uh, while doing a great job of compiling data and analyzing uh, different systems and how they interrelate, uh, never really come out and and look at that. There are a couple of places where they very clearly mention that uh, the overconsumption of meat in the Western world is tied to obesity, to various diseases, and so forth. Uh, And 
at one point say that maybe somewhere there might be some way of uh, it one area getting people to eat less meat. But remember, this is a huge uh, report which has an entire long multi-page chapter on the various uh, strategies for mitigation of this. And most of the strategies actually involve more intensive factory farming, uh, which unfortunately is a solution that goes directly against the one uh, being promulgated by Michael Pollan and that sector, which is telling us if we just get back to the land and continue to eat meat that has been raised by a loving family who has named their cow and treated it well, and then we can eat part of that cow and not feel guilty. That's a very extensive way of raising animals, uh, very expensive also, and uh, one that obviously you can't have both of you. You can either have the ethics or you can have the uh, environment, supposedly, but you can't you can't have both of these solutions at the same time. They're in direct contradiction of each other. In fact, the report is kind of in contradiction with itself. Just on, for one example, on page 97, methane released from animal manure uh, may total 18 million tons per year. Uh, and they specify this occurs mostly when manure is managed in liquid form, such as in lagoons or holding tanks. Well, those lagoons and holding tanks are a signal aspect of factory farming, of intensive, concentrated feedlot operations. And that's exactly what you're saying we need more of. And the the main point that I want to get at here, and I'll, I'll uh, step off and take you to the interview with Mickey Z. But the main point is that the contribution of livestock to global warming is immense. It's enormous. It's huge. And the basic solutions that they provide are increased efficiency. For example, water. I mean, we know that there's going to be a water crisis, and we also know that livestock, compared to plant agriculture, consumes vast unnecessary quantities of fresh water. Um, the, uh, the authors of this report, their main way of solving that is increased efficiency in irrigation systems. Well, I'm sorry, but as things are going along, as time marches on, it is just a general given that we will be working to increase the efficiency of irrigation systems. That's just going to happen, and it's either going to happen, we're going to get a great amount of increase of in efficiency, or we're not. Just saying, oh, we're going to do this for global warming is not going to magically make irrigation systems more efficient. But even if it did, that difference, the amount that that difference in efficiency can affect the overall water crisis or the overall global warming situation is uh, pretty pathetic in comparison to the enormity of the problem. And that's my main problem with this report, is that they go through and very carefully detail how huge the problem is, and then try to come up with some solutions that would mitigate it. And the solutions are all of a scale that just does not address, does not get at, does not get anywhere near solving this problem. What would solve this problem? Stop raising livestock. 
pretty simple. But because I think the authors of the report may have a certain unexamined biases, this concept and how we might go about achieving that, how we might go about working toward that, how we might go about taking down the number of livestock being raised by, for example, having policy across the Western world where those of us who are living in rich societies have vast access to all kinds of alternatives to eating meat, make it prohibitively expensive for us to continue to do that, then we can leave off the table all of these scenarios about uh, people in Kenya that only have rice to eat or beans to eat, they only have one kind of staple food, whereas if they had meat, uh, they would be able to increase the different kinds of nutrients they can take in. We leave that off the table and we just say, look, let's change policy where we can. And uh, frankly, if the Western world were to cut its meat consumption by, say, just 50%, that would make an enormous impact right now, and it would also put the brakes on the increase going on in uh, the developing countries, as they say, uh, in that the main assumption that more meat is better would be undercut significantly and we would start having an actual dialogue about how we're going to raise food in a global situation and in a global climate. Okay, now that's enough of that, isn't it? So let's break from this talking and uh, hear a little bit of music, and then we'll hear from Mickey Z.
All right, we're speaking now with Mickey Z, writer, activist, uh, and vegetarian celebrity, if I might, uh, who lives in New York. Uh, Mickey Z, welcome to VegCast. Thanks so much, Vance. Happy to be here. And thanks for being on the show. And I wanted you to speak uh, particularly to uh, an issue of your specialty, which is media coverage. And I know you, uh, you're not just a vegan uh, writer. You, you talk about uh, media coverage in various ways. But specifically, uh, I was intrigued by a review in The New Yorker of the Tristram Stewart book, The Bloodless Revolution, A Cultural History of Vegetarianism. And uh, it, it was not really that surprising of a review for The New Yorker. It pretty much went down the lines that I expected, coming to the conclusion that uh, the history of vegetarian thought neither adds up nor goes anywhere. And uh, that's kind of be, to be expected from a periodical that positions itself as supposedly moderate, centrist, and so forth. But uh, you had just at the same time written a, a, uh, a piece on the Nation's Review, and it was kind of ironic. You found it a little ironic that the Nation had supposedly a beachhead for the left in America, uh, went out of its way seemingly to trash uh, vegetarianism in their view. Is that is that a fair assessment, or how would you put oh, I would say so, yeah. And I guess I would agree with you with the supposedly that you threw in there, because I don't have any delusions that the nation represents um, anything radical in American culture, but they do present themselves as um, progressive and, say, liberal, and at the very, very least, alternative and right. non-corporate media. And I guess my initial problem with the review by Daniel Lazar was simply that it was the type of information, as you just said earlier, that you'd expect to see in the New Yorker or in the New York Times in a more mainstream corporate publication. And you would think that why is the nation giving their space to an opinion that is so widely spouted in the corporate press why not seek out a more alternative opinion so allow people to make up their own minds so they can read a wide spectrum of reviews on this particular book? One person said to me perhaps it was the nation's way of, of drumming up publicity and attention and so on, but I, I have a, you know, a pretty long history of being a vegan and writing about it and also moving within quote-unquote left circles, uh-huh. and it's not unusual that folks on the left have a rather hostile uh, reaction to issues surrounding vegetarianism, veganism, and animal rights in particular, and environmentalism to some degree, especially if you point fingers at SUVs and so on. But um, for the purpose of this interview, issues of vegetarianism and veganism can provoke some um, strong knee-jerk reactions from folks on the left. So therefore, the nation... um, one of the longest-running magazines or publications of the liberal left. I guess it's not astonishing. Um, the level of vitriol in the in the review perhaps was more than I would have ever expected in the nation. But when when you when you delve a little deeper, you realize that there is some consistency on the left. That there, um, that a lot of folks out there who have strong negative reactions to uh, issues of vegetarianism and animal rights. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll, uh, we will link to uh, your piece, uh, which is out on the web now, but do you have, can you give our listeners uh, any example of uh, some, of the, some of the negative uh, kind of phrasing or attitude that you found in this? Well, initially, one of the things that was disturbing was that um, the author of the review, Lazar, um, pretty much dismisses a lot of what the 
vegetarian and animal rights movement talk about uh, along the lines of, of, for example, his description of what happens in a slaughterhouse is the dispatching of an animal quick, quickly and efficiently for the good utilitarian purpose of feeding the hungry. Right. Now, if someone's vaguely familiar with slaughterhouses but don't know the details, if you read that, it, you've now set up the reader on your side with a complete disinformation there, right. as if animals, I mean, as if there's a, dispatching animals quickly and efficiently, and as if the goal of slaughterhouses and the, the factory farming industry is to feed the hungry. So he's already very early in the review, he's illustrated what his perception of this issue is, and his very, very strong bias. And the rest of the review, what, what I find disturbing about, about it, and it's also pretty prevalent on the left, is they speak of vegetarians and vegans as if it's this one monolithic group that speaks with a single voice. Right. And, he, and then one of the questions I ask in, the, in my re, rebuttal to him is, like, is, there, is there a vegetarian spokesman? I mean, who is he coming after here? Because it's not, obviously it's not a monolithic group, and if you speak to vegans, their, their opinions within within their own lifestyle can vary greatly. Mm-hmm. And there's no room for that in his review of the book. And I feel like the, it's really not so much a review. It's like a personal vendetta against people who, who choose like a plant-based diet and a vegan lifestyle. Right. Well, I don't know if it's exactly personal or if I suggested maybe it's an attempt to sister-soldier the uh, the vegetarian movement, uh, you know, among the left, so that they they would hope that they look a little more palatable by saying, "Oh, well, you know, you think we're uh, radical or whatever, but we're not so far as this." And that you know, putting somebody down that is over to one side of you as an attempt to kind of play to a more mainstream base, although I don't know exactly why the nation would be interested <laughs> in doing that. Yeah, I mean, well, they've been, there's been a serious drift towards the center at the nation and many other publications um, and websites recently, not coincidentally because of the, the Bush administration and so on. Mm-hmm. And I, I, as I said, I'm not utterly astonished to find this in the nation, but I will take them to task quicker than I would the New Yorker, because outside of some Seymour Hersh articles, I don't expect much out of the New Yorker. Right. The nation, maybe we can, maybe writers on the left, whatever, or on the progressive writers or radical writers, whatever adjective you want to use, maybe they can hold their feet to the fire to some degree and say, why are you running um, reviews that would be totally comfortable in the national review? It doesn't mean right. that you have to say, vegetarian, come out being pro-vegetarian, but this this type of information is available anywhere across the board. It's the type, it's the type, and the way it's presented, the the um, it's very it's very personal, and it's a very soundbite-ish. It has almost a Fox News feel to it, <laughs> and it, uh, you just you there's nothing wrong with demanding more out of that. And I would hope that that um, people would contact the nation, and not take it personally, saying I'm a vegan and you insulted me. You could say you insulted my intelligence by running a review of this nature. Right. I mean, if I can uh, just drag in the New Yorker uh, uh, piece again, there's a, a passage where the writer uh, ta- uh, quotes Paul McCartney's if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everyone would be a vegetarian. And then uh, it goes on to, to say, uh, it's true that many of those who have little experience of what goes on in an abattoir are repulsed by any kind of firsthand knowledge or even by reading vivid accounts. But things are different on the other side of the slaughterhouse wall. 
Those who kill animals in the course of their working day may quickly become habituated to it and to dismiss, and here's the, the part that just is incomprehensible to me, to dismiss this effect as mere desensitization effectively discounts great knowledge of animal death in favor of slight knowledge. It, it gets, how does, I don't even understand that sentence, but yeah. that's what desensitization See, is. I'm not even sure if I understand their point. Yeah. But, uh, well, but I mean, the thing is that desensitizing as something that somehow seems to justify it. Right. If 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 anyone, any writer across the board used that same argument to defend, for example, slavery. Right. They they would be they wouldn't first of all they wouldn't be given voice in the New Yorker or the Nation or anywhere except to be mocked. Right. And I don't and rightfully so nobody would really take them very seriously. But there seems to be it vegetarianism is is a, a lifestyle that still does not have the respect that that a, a left wing publication like the nation is going to be offended by this review. It's almost on some level that they're giving a tacit approval of the review, of course, by publishing it. Well, sure. And and this, like I said, this, this, these illogical arguments and factual inaccuracies would, wouldn't stand anywhere else. Right. And whether it was the New Yorker or whether it was the Nation, it wouldn't stand. But it seems to be like nobody did any fact checking because it's like, oh yeah, yeah, he's just making fun of those wacky uh, tofu eaters. Right. And and that, to me, that's inexcusable because it's not even if even if I was a meat eater, this is an insult to my intelligence. Right. And uh, it's uh, would you say that that. Uh uh, if we could look beyond these uh, two particular pieces and this this one book, uh, and again, I I feel like having read uh, both of these reviews, I still I have not read uh, you know the Bloodless Revolution. I still don't feel like I got a good picture of <laughs> of, yeah. of the book because both of these people spent the most time uh, basically trying to marshal their own arguments about vegetarianism rather than reviewing the book. But if we could move into the wider uh, context is this? Does this kind of fit into a larger uh, kind of trend of the way vegetarianism is uh, contextualized by by the mainstream, or is there anything particular about the way uh, left or moderate left uh, publications uh, seem to treat uh, the issue? Well, I think I, I think it's typical of the mainstream, and I, and I think that would be because it's a corporate media. You know the. The, the, the major media are essentially large corporations or aligned with large corporations, and their goal is to sell their audience to advertisers. Right. And they have a very strong vested interest in the economic status quo. So when, if, I were to, if this exact review appeared in the New York Times, I don't even know if I would have even mentioned it on my blog, because it would have been right. so par for the course. On the left, it's, it's an interesting um, concept. It's, it's everybody seems to have their vision or the vast majority of people seem to have their vision of what represents dissent. For example, there's going to be a big march in Washington. Thousands and thousands of people are going to go down and voice their anti-war opinions. And, you know, it's all done. They have permits of where they can go, and they make prearranged agreements with the police of how many people are going to be um, arrested. And it's done on a Saturday, so nobody has to take off of work or school. And that's considered to be dissent. But when you try and speak to people who are passionately anti-war or any, any other left stance, about making a change in their daily life and making a difference three or four times a day by becoming a vegan, by, by embracing animal rights, you, you find that people can get very hostile. Now, obviously, it's a case-by-case -case situation, and I can't overgeneralize, but from years of doing this, I feel like they, 
the, the, the two basic attacks that you get here is because folks who identify as activists or radicals are unwilling or unable to make the commitment to a different lifestyle, they either attack the messengers, which then just becomes personal attacks, or they try to deny the benefits of this lifestyle or any radical aspects of this lifestyle. And I think the Nation Review fits into that general area there, because it, it doesn't adhere to the accepted uh, avenues of dissent on the left. And maybe to some degree that's a shortcoming of folks like us who are trying to get this message out, but also it's many, many, many centuries and at, at the very least decades of conditioning to marginalize this lifestyle. And I'm not saying that this is the be-all and the end-all, but, uh, um, and perhaps I'm speaking to the converted here, but the, this, this is, this, these are steps that people can take and feel empowered by and make an immediate difference towards creating a different society and a different culture. And we need a lot more steps but I would argue that these steps are far more powerful and far more important than showing up for a weekend march, holding up a sign and going home on, uh, and saying, um, you know, uh, right. Bush is fascist. Well, I mean, speaking of avenues of dissent, um, are, are there other avenues that, I mean, you, you certainly, uh, you've published books. You have uh, a book, uh, The Murdering of My Years, and other uh, books. There are blogs now that are starting to connect people outside of the, the regular channels uh, that people were able to get and share information before. Do you have any other, uh, any other hopeful signs about how people might uh, get the word out and how other people might learn about, you know, let's say people who are in, of a mind to actually do something, uh, but they just don't have the information yet? Well, I agree with you that the Internet puts immediately into our hands information that we could never access before without, at the very least, it would take a long time to access it, and immediate contact with folks all over the globe who are asking the same question. So certainly that's a positive, and we've got to hope that, that it can make, it could only, only get better as opposed to being censored in any way. And um, I do find that I'm somebody that's, a, that's kind of all over the web and in a lot of different places, plus my own website, and I do find that people across the spectrum are asking questions that are remarkably similar because things begin to hit everyone no matter what, how they identify politically, whether it's issues of health care. So many Americans either uninsured or underinsured. In fact, one-third of Americans uninsured or underinsured. Um, the, the, the epidemic of preventable diseases like cancer and diabetes and, and heart disease and stroke and, uh, and Alzheimer's, these, these diseases that, that many respected doctors and scientists are saying are diet and lifestyle related, people begin to say, you know, I'm, I'm asking some questions about this, and so they, they look to different sources. And um, most recently, perhaps the, the most powerful um, voice and book that I've read is Derek Jensen's Endgame. I would recommend that highly to anyone who really wants this holistic picture of our culture. It's certainly it's powerful, and I think it would inspire a lot of people to, to ask very, very important and urgent questions about their own lifestyle and the folks around them. Okay, and just in terms of uh, what you're doing, obviously I mentioned the books. You have a column in Veg News. Uh, is there anything else that uh, we should be sure to tip our listeners, too, uh, coming up on the Mickey Z horizon. Well, 
I have a couple of potential book deals in the works, um, always all over the web, and I encourage folks to come to MickeyZ.net because whenever uh, myself or my wife and I are doing any type of projects in which we're trying to help groups right now, we're trying to raise some money for a group called Girls for Gender Equity in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, and the details will be on my blog about that. People can get involved that way, and also if they, um, they come to the blog, they can join the discussions there, and it's not it's not moderated by me. It's a lot of great folks interacting and talking, and, and a lot of ideas and actions spur you know come are spawned right there. Right. So we're always looking for uh, new voices and new ideas, and um, I would love people to stop by and, and check out what we're doing. Okay, great. Let me just ask as a final question. Do you? I mean, uh, I don't want to get you to be Nostradamus here, but looking down the road in terms of media, do you see? Uh, any chance for the kind of decentralization uh, that we're talking about with blogs and so forth to take uh, to to kind of tip the scales, or do you see uh, you know the the mainstream, the corporate media having finding different ways to co-opt and, and fight back? Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I would I would say it's very difficult based on the information that's in front of me and the evidence in front of me to be overly optimistic. But I remember one time I went to see a documentary about. Henry Kissinger, in which one of the talking heads in the movie, and I can't remember his name, said, every revolution seems impossible till it starts to happen, and then it seems inevitable. And there could be a spark out there that certainly I'm not going to be the one to know about. And as you said, I'm not Nostradamus. I'm, I'm doing my little part. But I think that there's enough unrest there's enough alienation, there's enough isolation, and people are beginning to ask questions that sooner or later there's got to be some type of backlash that this information that we're getting from the corporate media, and I, I, I don't buy into the liberal media um, myth, this corporate right. media across the board that, that supports an economic status quo, regardless of whether people are Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, whatever, I think people are beginning more and more to recognize that what they're being told is almost essentially meaningless. It's just pure distraction. And I think as their own lives become impacted by this culture that we've created and all bought into and all contributed to, I think you can't help but begin to ask pressing questions about how did I end up here, how did we end up here, and what can we do to change it before it's too late. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with us on VegCast. Uh, Mickey Z, and we'll have obviously links uh, to MickeyZ.net and uh, the piece and other things that we've talked about. And I wish you the best up there in New York, and keep on fighting the good fight. Thanks, Vance. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Thanks. For this edition of Science Fact, we have a story whose lesson is that eating raw meat tends to make humans ill. The actual headline is, Raw Cougar Meat Makes Hunter Sick. From the Yakima Herald Republic, a Washington State man uh, ate raw cougar meat last fall after a hunting trip, and that resulted in the state's first trichinosis case since 2001. He has since recovered. The article goes on to say, while hunters around the state have been known to eat the large cats, just as some eat deer or even bear, consuming it raw or undercooked is risky, said Kevin Berry, director of the Clickitat County Health Department. 
He continues, I'm not up on my cougar preparation because I'm not a consumer myself, but we frown on that with any meat, even commercial beef. And now, uh, this is not all that bizarre or noteworthy a story. It's not exactly a jaw-dropper that eating raw meat would make you sick, except if you're putting forward the argument that you're a carnivore. This is something that I hear all the time. I'm a carnivore. We're at the top of the food chain, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if, you know, our bodies are meant to digest meat like carnivores, isn't it odd that eating meat in its natural state would make us sick? Isn't it odd that we have to apply a cultural, culturally learned practice, that of cooking, to the meat in order to not even get sick from it. It just seems like uh, an interesting little conundrum. And that's something that we will leave you with in today's brief but essential science fact. Okay, that's it for this 20th edition of VegCast, the Veggie Podcast. Thanks for downloading us. It went a little bit longer than I had planned, probably because of the excessive bloviating at the top of the show. But that's fine. I uh, will get out of here now, and I hope to have another podcast up before Valentine's Day, keeping VegCast to the schedule it was originally intended to keep, so watch for that. And as always, you can send your comments, uh, suggestions, music, whatever, to vance at vegcast.com. And until the next time, get out there and live like you mean it.